This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to look at the story of the boy with a demon, in which Jesus puts on a master class on what it takes to cast out demons, which I'm going to argue is faith, hope, and love. But he also sheds light on doubt, on faith arguments, and what he really thinks of those who relish being right all the time about the faith. So let me start by reading this story. Once again, this story appears in three of the Synoptic Gospels. I'm going to read the story from Mark, because I like Mark. And also, Mark, as usual, brings out some important details that are lacking a little bit in the others. The healing of a boy with a spirit. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one in the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a dumb spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the boy saw him, immediately it convulsed the body, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has he had this? And he said, From childhood. And it often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd come running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter into him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him, and he arose. And when they had entered into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. I love this Mark version, but I do like a detail that's in Luke at least, and possibly also in Matthew. I just looked it up in Luke where it says the very next day after coming down from the mountain is when all of this happened. And I love that because this is a story about coming down from the mountaintop. And coming down from the mountaintop is always hard. After seeing Jesus transfigured on Mount Tabor, James, John, and Peter now come down with Jesus and see a giant mess. Jesus' followers are arguing with scribes while a crowd watches them a crowd which had apparently watched the disciples fail to drive a demon out of a boy. 
So the first thing to point out is that some commentators question why this story is here at all. It seems out of place when Jesus has relaunched his public ministry with his grand declaration of the Passion, and then appeared transfigured on Mount Tabor. We'll see him in this season point out a number of programmatic statements about fundamental aspects of Christian life. How are children to be understood? What is marriage all about? What's the relationship between religion and government? So why is he randomly doing another exorcism? I think a few answers are available here. The first is the most obvious one. Apparently that's what happened next in the story. I like that answer. It's a little bit glib though, because we must grant that the gospel writer Mark is indeed shaping a story with a teaching lesson in mind so that it's not just necessarily that he's emphasizing every single thing that happened in order. This is, however, the thing which happened the next day, coming down from the mountaintop. But I think that there's something more important here about what happens precisely after spiritual high points. Often we immediately find ourselves in a worse situation than we left. You leave a great spiritual retreat and come home to find your spouse overwhelmed by being left in charge of everything and a little bit irritated at you and not having had your mountaintop experience a little more irritating than they should be and ready to hand you a disaster and just check out. But also here, there's another aspect to that. Everything seems to be messed up. It's not a smooth, triumphant Jesus story. It's a choppy, unhappy story of misunderstanding and dysfunction. No one gets spared this, including you and me in the 21st century. If you loved the transfiguration like I did, we both have to come down from the mountaintop and back into the unhappy valley of ordinary reality. This is a very key moment where the disciples have to learn something new. The disciples were arguing with a scribe, we don't know the content of the argument, but we can imagine the scribe started the fight. Probably after the disciples, in front of a crowd, no less, failed to do what they needed to do to expel a demon. Did the scribes perhaps mock the disciples for their failure? Or once again bring up their old argument that Jesus casts out demons by the power of the devil? Jesus walks up and it says the crowd was greatly amazed by him. Why were they greatly amazed? Is it some residual effect of the transfiguration? Maybe not, since that was a singular experience and Jesus was very capable of not looking transfigured. Maybe it was simply the normal reason people were amazed by him. They're watching these scribes and disciples squabbling and seeing the confident and competent and loving Jesus may have been significantly different in a surprising, attractive way. What are you discussing with them? Jesus asks. They don't answer, but someone from the crowd does. He calls Jesus teacher and describes the demon that has possessed his son. We'll get to that in a second, but let's pause right here to notice something that I think is a key, the key to the reading. The disciples arguing reminds me of a comment Pope Francis said when he was visiting Philadelphia and he spoke to bishops, a line that's haunted me ever since. He said, A Christianity which does little in practice while incessantly explaining its teachings is dangerously unbalanced. End quote. It's a theme he has taken up often, arguing against a Christianity that is closed within itself. 
and complaining about religious narcissism that gazes at its own image and does not see the image of God on the face of others? This is something I have often been guilty of, and I know many others are. We think that our faith is all about arguing about doctrine or liturgy, but that's not what our faith is about. It's about serving God and neighbor. Helping other people expand their faith is an act of love. Besting them in a theological argument is not. Being right and proving it is not a religious act. It's an act of pride and dominance. Yet, so often, this is the only kind of public religious act some of us make. And in this scene after the Transfiguration, we see a microcosm of the church today. Picture the scene. Here's Jesus Christ, who has just shone forth in awe-inspiring glory, and the leaders of his new project, the new kingdom, coming down from a mountain where he spoke of a new exodus for mankind. And here are the disciples bickering with religious opponents. And here is a man who has weak faith and an afflicted boy watching helplessly and finally pushing past the bickering disciples to try to get real help from Jesus himself. We live in an age where Jesus Christ has manifested himself in astonishing ways, visible ways from the miracle of Fatima to the angels that appeared over the Ukraine, but also in invisible, in doctrinal ways. We have a church that has the answer to many of the world's most pressing problems. We have our social teachings about politics and economics, our deep understanding of the human person, which directly answers so much of what bothers people today, and worldwide commitment to love and service, stretching back centuries, which is exactly the dream that many people have. So why are things going as poorly as they're going? What happened? The afflicted people of our time, with exactly the problems we were built to solve, see us as totally irrelevant to their lives. As we bicker among ourselves and exasperated, they find they have to take matters into their own hands and reach whatever conclusions they can about God the best they can on their own. That's why Jesus answers with such exasperation. He says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He doesn't talk like that to the desperate victims we have seen in the past, the lepers, the sinners, the blind, the broken. He does speak that way to the Pharisees, and now he speaks that way to his disciples, to those people who have been traveling with him. And I think it is fair to say he speaks that way to us, the fellow travelers like you and me, as long as our faith is still just words we bandy around and argue about, and not something that changes our lives and through us changes our neighborhoods. I must say, I have less and less sympathy for faith arguments, combox warriors, or social media figures who spend their time categorizing the issues in the church and dispatching one villain after the other in their virtual world. Fine, there are issues in the church, real issues. But you know what is more pressing? Bringing healing to the people who are in the grips of Satan, literally, or through slavery to sin. Promoting the sacraments. Helping people know and love Jesus who are despairing in our midst. Jesus loves all of us all the time, but he doesn't always like us. And when we are continually treating the faith like it's a series of debating points, he finds us exasperating to be around. In this story, he doesn't say, shut up for a second and love your neighbor. But he kind of does by saying, how long am I to bear you? Then about the boy, bring him to me. There are three movements in this story. First, Jesus approaching the crowd, 
then Jesus conversing with the father of the boy, and last, Jesus expelling the demon? I think the lesson of this first section is shut up and serve. But that lesson, that part of the story, casts its shadow over the drama of the boy in the second part, a shadow of faithlessness, if you will. His disciples don't have faith. After all they have seen, they don't know how to act. The Jewish scribes don't have faith. They do nothing but complain about the disciples. Now we see that the man, the hurt boy's dad, doesn't have a ton of faith either. All of that is no coincidence, I think. The more we squabble about doctrine and intra-church issues, the less faith we have. The less faith we have, the less faith the world has. The world isn't in a mess because of bad people outside the church only. It's in a mess because of Christian's failure within the church to serve the people we're put among. And the disciples have no excuse for their lack of faith. Later, Jesus will say, Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. Here, we have disciples who saw him raise the dead, cast out demons, and teach mind-blowing truths. In other words, he has people who have seen and still don't believe. And that makes him mad. Just like earlier, he was astonished by one crowd's lack of belief. At any rate, the man comes forward and describes the symptoms of his son's disease, which sound, suspiciously, a lot like epilepsy. He says his son falls to the ground as if by a seizure. His teeth become rigid and he foams at the mouth. So is this just epilepsy? No, that's not what it is. We already know that the gospel writers understood very well the difference between epilepsy and demonic possession. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, he says, quote, News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them, end quote. So, why is this boy with epileptic symptoms called a demoniac? His dad makes that clear when he describes the symptoms next. What at first looks like epilepsy turns out to be something sinister. Epileptic fits appear random. These are seizures that are directed towards self-destruction. Ironically, it's self-destruction that is a kind of mockery of God. Jesus brings us to new life through water and the devil tries to destroy this boy by throwing him into water with these seizures. John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize with fire. The demon wants to scorch this kid by throwing him into fire. But then the man commits one of the major faux pas of the Bible. He sounds almost polite as he says, If you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. But Jesus is not polite in his answer. This gets a rise out of Jesus. If you can, he says, there are layers and layers of tension in this. Let's review the reason the man has for his lack of faith. First, the disciples failed and then forgot about the man and his boy as they argued with the scribes, making a spectacle of their failure in front of the crowd, like modern-day disciples who can do nothing for the world but complain about the church instead. But then, as Jesus approached, the child was convulsed with the problem again, as bad as ever. The dad is exasperated and ready to give up on Jesus. But Jesus is having none of it. He has no patience for the disciples' clueless behavior, but he also has no patience for this man who wants to blame the church, blame the disciples for his own lack of faith. Nowadays, he says the same thing to us 
when we see a problem and blame the parish or the bishop. Sure, God gets it. His disciples messed up. He'll deal with them. But he wants us to look in a mirror instead. Fine, you don't like your pastor. Have you personally reached out to anyone in your neighborhood? Maybe you're upset with the Pope. Too bad, so sad. But Jesus didn't send you to earth as a papal critic. He sent you to address the problems in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your life. Have you? Why not? Don't you have faith? Because after all, everything is possible for he that has faith. And that's what Jesus says here. Everything is possible for he that has faith. And I must say, this is one of my favorite lines in the Bible, because it's the first one I memorized. But I memorized it in Spanish when I was living as a non-practicing Catholic in Mexico. I was staying with a Mexican family as part of a summer program, which I was attending at the University of Arizona. On the wall in the room where I was staying was a poster with the words, Todo es posible para el que tiene fe. Everything is possible for he that has faith. I think even when I memorized this as a non-believer, I knew it wasn't a Peter Pan statement, that it didn't mean something like, whatever you want to do, wish hard enough and you can do it. What it means is, as one ancient commentator put it, all things are possible that are prayed for with tears for salvation. He gets that from the next line in the gospel that we're reading today. As it is said in the King James Version, it says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that is one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It captures where my faith often is, but more on that in the end. Let's return to the scene. Seeing Jesus get angry and the man weep was like a fight on a playground, which always attracts a crowd. Here, the crowd came running together as Jesus demanded that the mute and deaf spirit come out and never enter into him again. And with that, we enter into the third movement of this little story. Because next comes a dramatic moment when the boy drops pale and cold and everyone thinks he's dead. The devil had been trying to destroy him, and now it looks like it worked. The drama of the moment was caught up in everything that came before. The faithless generation, the squabbling religious people, the overeager crowd. It seemed like this wasn't going to work, like Jesus couldn't do it. Or worse, these interfering religious people had only made it worse. They had only provoked the demon, which grew in strength, and now it has killed the boy. But then Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up. It's like a miniature resurrection scene. Like earlier miracles, this one comes from a parent's faith and prayer. We have already seen other parents saving their children through faith in Jesus, the great faith of the Canaanite woman and the worried faith of Jairus. In each case, Jesus wasn't rewarding a life of committed witness and belief. He was rewarding desperate faith. Jairus was desperate. The Canaanite woman was desperate. This man is desperate. And in each case, they were willing to debase themselves for their child. Jairus embarrassed himself, putting his position and reputation at risk. The Canaanite woman was willing to be called a dog for her child. This man was willing to weep in front of a crowd. Each was also willing to give a very honest act of faith. Maybe this is exactly what the problem was with the disciples' so-called faith. They have a faith that argues, not a faith that acts. A proud faith. 
And that's less faith than a man who says, if you can do this and help my unbelief. The last thing that happens in this story is that the disciples take Jesus aside to ask, why couldn't we drive it out? So although in front of the crowd, he won't tolerate the man blaming the church, behind closed doors, he is willing to tell the church what needs to happen if they are going to get this right. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting, he says. In other words, the church has to become as desperate for souls as a panicked parent. The parent is so concerned for his child that he will do anything. And that's how desperate we all should be for the brothers and sisters of our world that we see in trouble. So desperate that we will shut up our bickering and do anything and everything we can to help them. How do we get to that point? Jesus tells us, by prayer and fasting. Now, there's some kind of dispute about whether the word fasting belongs here or not. The Ignatius version of the Bible has it. The Word on Fire version of the same translation does not have it. I included it because I really like it. I think it puts an emphasis on the prayer part. Don't just pray. Pray hard. Beg. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't just pray. Go on a hunger strike, protesting that the evil has to end, begging for this soul's deliverance from Satan by Christ as your one and only demand. Because ultimately, I think the desperation of a parent is the perfect model for faith, hope, and love. It's a faith that will believe anything, whatever it takes to get relief for your child. It's a trust that hopes against hope in the darkest moment that the child will be all right. It's a love that will spend all of its resources if that's what it takes to save the kid, because a parent, at least, sees the worth of their child with the same clarity God does. This is the faith of Joseph and Mary. When my wife and I were engaged, I wrote a prayer for us to say to the patrons of Mary life, Joseph and Mary. And these words just came out when I was writing the prayer, and I've used them ever since. Give me a faith that is humble and obedient, a hope that proves itself with action, and a love that accepts suffering and setback. Give me a faith that is humble and obedient, a hope that proves itself with action, a love that accepts suffering and setback. This is exactly what we find here. First, a faith that is humble and obedient. Here we have a man who has to learn faith. But what he learns is that he has to be humble, willing to accept Jesus' rebuke, and that he has to be obedient, asking that Jesus dictate his faith, which is what he does with the words, help my unbelief. This is the opposite of the lack of faith shown by the bickering disciples and scribes. It's also the opposite of my faith. Too often, my faith is whatever I want it to be, dictated by my political or economic ideology or scientific bent. Faith like that, though, is closed-minded. I will believe Jesus as long as he agrees with my preconceived notions, as long as I can make sense of Jesus on my own terms. To have a faith that is humble and obedient is to be open-minded enough to doubt our own conclusions, and obedient enough to choose Christ's way of seeing things over our own. Next, a hope that proves itself with action. The dad in this story not only hopes in deliverance from Jesus and his disciples, he seeks out Jesus' disciples. Then, when Jesus is asking his disciples what happened, he steps forward to tell them, what is going on, and get help for his son. Our own hope in Jesus is sometimes very vague. We hope he will solve an addiction in our life, 
and then we are unhappy when he doesn't. But our hope isn't strong enough to cause us to face up to the root cause of our addiction and seek help. We hope we will have better friendships. Then we feel let down when we don't. But we don't hope enough to actually strike up a conversation with somebody or call an old acquaintance and make plans. The thing is to hope and then act. Hope follows action. The more you act, the more you are trusting that you will be helped. If you have little kids, you have seen how this works. If a kid is afraid of something, you can reassure them and then lead them in. Maybe it's a kid who's afraid of the dark, or maybe it's a kid who doesn't want to go into the water. Your son has no hope if he crouches and refuses to go one step more until the situation changes to his liking. Your daughter, who takes her hand and goes step by step forward, has a hope that proves itself with action, which is to say, a trust of you that proves itself by following. We need to trust Jesus enough to follow him and do the things he asks. Last is a love that accepts suffering and setback. This one is key, because this is exactly the one that Jesus asks for when he asks them to pray and to fast. It's easy to love if nothing is at stake. It's hard to love when God asks for something really hard. Everyone loves friends enough to drop off a meal if it's needed. But do we love enough to take time out of our day and sit with them? Or to give your meal and skip it yourself? That's love that accepts setback and suffering. And that's why Jesus wants us to fast. I ended up twice watching the movie about Abraham called His Only Son that an independent filmmaker made on a tiny budget, but that the studio that produces The Chosen is helping distribute. The movie was admirable given its budget, but not great. Nonetheless, it was a beautiful opportunity to meditate on what God asked of Abraham and Sarah, where time and again, he asked them to do things that were counterintuitive, including the big two, leaving their home for an unknown land and sacrificing Sarah's only son. In the movie, Abraham's difficulties with what he is being asked get harder and harder for him to take. And he finally says to God, take me, not Isaac, take me. In a way, I think that's what all of our sacrifice is for. As Bishop Barron says in his commentary in the Word on Fire Pentateuch, when someone sacrifices an animal, they are saying, what is happening to this animal by rights should be happening to me. To fast means to do that with your own body. You tell God, I am not going to be obsessed with my own desires and appetites. I'm going to put them away for this person, for you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that fasting, if it is secret, gets a reward. Quote, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance so that they may appear to others to be fasting. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not appear to others to be fasting, except your Father who is hidden, and your Father who sees what is hidden will repay you. End quote. So, you don't fast to show off, but to show you accept suffering and setback. You don't fast to change God's will. You fast to show that you accept God's will. Fasting should bring about a conversion of heart, your heart. It is you demonstrating that you are not driven by your own ego, but by what God wants. The church requires fasting twice for Catholics, once on Ash Wednesday to jumpstart our Lent, a season of training and choosing God's will over our own in a special way. 
The second time the church requires fasting is Good Friday, in solidarity with Jesus Christ's death on the cross as he offers himself for the Father. After all, Jesus said, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. So fasting is a way to sacrifice your ego, your ego that limits and traps you and yourself. It's like putting your prized bull on an altar and burning it up for God. Ultimately, it's like offering God your Isaac, the thing that you see so important to your identity that you can't do without it, the thing that is more important to you than God. Fasting puts faith, hope, and love together, I think. The more you are willing to suffer for someone, the more you are willing to love them. The more you are willing to suffer, the more you hope that something good will come out of it to make it worth it. And the more hope you have, and the more you act for someone, the more you believe, humbly and obediently, that God will take care of the situation as it can best be taken care of. And I have to close out by returning to that prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. This is a key prayer for me. I pray it all the time. I believe, help my unbelief. Father Dwight Longenecker, one of my favorite current writers, has a great essay on doubt that addresses what I think I love about this prayer. He quotes St. John Henry Newman, who wrote, 10,000 difficulties do not go to make up one doubt. What he means is that there is a difference between a doubt and a difficulty. Someone facing a difficulty says, how can this be so? Someone facing a doubt says, this can't be so. Langenecker gives three reasons for difficulties, which we usually call doubts, saying that, first, difficulties or doubts strengthen faith since we struggle with them and then find an answer that is more compelling than our unchallenged faith. Second, they clarify faith because difficulties or doubts often come because we misunderstood the full importance of a doctrine. And third, difficulty doubts teach us humility and compassion, helping us understand better how to counsel the doubtful. Once we realize we don't know it all, we can be more understanding about others who don't know it all and actually work together with them to know more. Jesus can't stand proud religious types who bicker over details, showing people how much they know while children suffer a few feet away. He loves those who have reached an impasse in their lives and can't navigate on their own anymore, and so are willing finally to turn to him and say, forgive me, forgive me for trying to fit you inside of the overinflated self-important story I am telling with my life. Instead, give me a faith that is humble and obedient, a hope that proves itself with action, and a love that accepts suffering and setback, and help me find my place Help me find my story in your extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.